Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. It was it was in the middle of COVID, I think, where um, I got invested in this and uh, a lot of people got invested in this uh, fish out of water coach named Ted Lasso. And I'm not endorsing everything about it. Don't sit down with your kids and start watching it. And, and as the swears come say, oh, didn't Pastor Jonathan uh, insist that we watch this? No, no, he did not. But I will say this, I, I like that it had um, this unapologetically positive vibe. Uh, you know, our pop culture landscape has kind of been filled with uh, anti-heroes lately, like the Walter Whites and the, uh, the Succession Kids and the Ozark Gang. But, but Ted just had this, this positivity. And uh, he, he'd tap a homemade sign on the way out of the dressing room. Y'all remember what was written on it? Believe. It was like um, a few decades ago when the, these underdog New York Mets won the World Series and the two young pitchers told the world their secret. Tom Seaver, Tug McGraw, they borrowed a line from Walt Disney and said, you gotta believe. It's Peter Pan stuff, right? It's like this cliche in the popular culture that Good things come if someone just has enough confidence in the outcome, you know, in order to win the game or get the job or get the girl or win a trip to Hollywood on American Idol. You just, you just really, really need to believe. Uh, it's turned into this weird thing like just believe in belief. <laughs> and of course that, idea gets co-opted into, into outright heresy, like this idea, you know, putting your wish list out to the universe, right? Manifesting it. This was absolutely the premise behind the um, completely unchristian book called The Secret. And, and honestly, it's not that far off from what might be called the word of faith movement within the church. It's, it's that name it and claim it, that blab it and grab it, that idea that our faith obligates God into giving us the best things in life. When? Right now, because I stamp my little feet and, and say the right words. You just, you just gotta believe, man. And, and I'm even watching how I or otherwise sane Christians might stretch this take way too far. We prayed and the first day of the baseball tournament was beautiful. 
And so assuming the reason we had this first sunny day was because of our exceptional faith, then what about the second day when it was torrential rainfall? Was that either because our, our faith had failed or our God had failed? If bad things happen because our faith is inadequate, then no one has sufficient faith because everyone faces problems in this broken world. But if bad things happen because our God is inadequate, then folks, let's just give up this Christianity thing because we have no one to turn to in this troubled world if that's the case. And Jesus told us directly that difficulty is going to invade every part of our life, including the faithful, the remnant. Uh, So stop gauging the adequacy of your faith by the absence of trials. You know, as, as exiles living in Babylon, we've got to define faith by standards that are just very different than the popular consensus. This, this third chapter of Daniel's history tells us of, Three giants in the faith, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They even make what we call the faith hall of fame found in Hebrews 11. And as you'll see, these young men uh, didn't face their trial with zero doubts. Um, They did not face it by manifesting the desired outcome. And because they were not sovereign or omniscient like God is, they actually left open the possibility uh, that this may not end well for them. Um, This is where a Disney-like belief in belief ain't going to cut it. But you know what? For me, um, their actions, their words, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have taught me more about biblical faith, faith as an exile than just about anyone Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It is confidence in a sovereign God. Okay. We, we trust that he knows what we don't. I've, I've seen this version of Christianity wherein uh, we kind of act like athletes, like psyching ourselves up for the big game, convincing ourselves that, you know, if we just really, really believe you can do this, you know, I, I see myself scoring. You, you got this. Let's go. And so we apply this in different ways. We say, um, Lord, <laughs> release that parking spot. Uh, and even though I got to say, I got to say, our family has had what I would describe as a God moment in the search for a parking spot. I'll tell you that story another time, but point is I'm not building a whole theology on that, except to say God does care about even the little moments. The takeaway from that moment though, is that if God did not provide that spot, it doesn't mean he was inadequate to do so. And nor should the assumption be that our faith was at fault. Tons of, of Christians walk around with heaps of guilt because of this. I think, you know, many walk away from God because of it. 
So let's look at a model for us as modern exiles who will inevitably face hard times and what it means to respond with biblical faith. Okay, so chapter three. Um, If you haven't been tracking with us, the book of Daniel tells us about one of the most prosperous and powerful dictator nations ever, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. His armies conquered countries. And when they did, what would they do? They would take the, the best and the brightest, the most skilled men of that nation to his capital city. And they would be brought into the royal home to, to eat the best food and wear the best clothes and advise the king uh, with these positions of influence. But they were still strangers in a strange land. They were exiles in a enemy country, aliens in a wicked culture. I hope this theme for our year at NAC is, is becoming more obvious as you read this story. Folks, as citizens of the kingdom of God, a faithful remnant who serve a different king, King Jesus, we are exiles living in a modern Babylon. And the truth is, we don't really fit here. We don't fit the culture. But the problem is we've been given the best food and the best clothes. We've been given some positions of influence. We've been living here so long. We've assimilated so well. We're starting to think it's our culture. We've become residents of Babylon and we're not even longing for our real home. And so four men are captured in Jerusalem but they did not forget who they were or whose they were. They didn't belong to Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were were children and heirs of God. And so they had a different first loyalty and their second loyalty didn't even come close. Now, remember, we talked about this in week one, one of the great indignities that these exiles would have faced was having their name changed. Um, I know we call them Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but those are their Babylonian names. Um, They're slave names, right? And names mean something, uh, especially in scripture. All three of those Babylonian names are a a variation on servant of uh, one of three false gods. And Their given names were actually Hananiah, which means Jehovah has been gracious. Uh, Mishael, which means who is like our God. And Azariah, which means Jehovah has helped. And I can almost guarantee this as POWs, as exiles, as, as a small but faithful remnant, when they were alone with each other, no guards around, they most certainly would have called each other by their given names, names that were actually rooted in the story of the one true God. So uh, verse one to 18 tells us how this egomaniacal authoritarian Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of himself, 90 feet tall or, or 60 cubits by six cubits by six cubits, 60, six, 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 
That's interesting. And he sets it up in the plain of Dura, it says in verse two. And he says, when you hear the music cue, everyone in the kingdom is to fall down and worship this idol of the king. And if you don't, it's immediate execution in a fiery furnace. And it's found out that these three God following exiles don't, they refused. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they're, they're brought before the king. And here, here's what they say. Verse 16, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, <laughs> we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Here, here's what I love. When the moment comes, when, when somebody realizes that death is inescapable and there's nothing they can do, often the last message is an expression of, of regret or despair or bargaining. And for these three young men in the prime of their life, it seems like death is inescapable. And all they have to do is just bend a knee to this narcissistic king and, and his statue and their nightmare is over. They'll be restored to their positions of, of status. They are headed towards unimaginable death and pain, but they wouldn't say that word. They wouldn't bend that knee. Life or death, these three guys chose death over idolatrous worship. And, and no doubt there would have been others who were taken as slaves from Jerusalem, but we don't know any of their names. Why? Maybe because they missed an opportunity to make a stand for their convictions and bring glory to God. I, I want you to know that kind of devotion to God, that kind of courage is possible for ordinary people, okay? The God we serve is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, O king, we want you to know that we ain't gonna worship you. You know, this, this looked like their final words, good final words, <laughs> great final words, but final words nonetheless. Now look at what it says in verse 19. When these young men were brought to him, I think Nebuchadnezzar was mad but up until that point, he's still doing good cop approach, trying to uh, woo them to the other side. Like, all right, boys, enough shenanigans. When you, when you hear the music, just, just worship me and everything will go back to normal. But they decide to face death rather than disobey God. Folks, um, in Canada, we do indeed have more subtle, but cultural idols, nonetheless, idols that you could say demand our worship, wealth, career, accumulation, comfort. And, and that's a fair application and we can find strength and courage from this true story. But you know what, for many in the world today, even in 2023, this story has a much more literal application. Um, 
Many today are facing the decision of faith in Jesus or death to either acquiesce and live or make a stand for Christ and die. And so Nebuchadnezzar is done with good cop and he flies into a rage full on bad cop now. And he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. Okay. He's going to make a, an example of these rebellious three. Well, in verse 20 to 23, um, you know, we forget sometimes in these short narratives that despite how heroic they seem in retrospect, uh, we know how it ends. They don't. They're real people who have real families and friends and hopes and dreams. They are real people who have fears and phobias and doubts and insecurities. They're, they're real people and they see the cards who, who have brought them have just collapsed and died from the heat and the flames before they even get to the furnace. It is that hot. Well, then they're in the fire and they wait for the searing pain. They wait for the smoke inhalation that is going to suffocate their lungs, but nothing happens. They don't feel any different. And it begins to dawn on them that there's no pain. There's no, there's no burns. There's no smoke. It doesn't even feel that warm. I should have brought a sweater. One of them says, and, and their restraints have been burned off, but not them. And you know what? That's not even the best part. The best part is when this turns from a miracle to a divine encounter with the living God. Verse 24, you know, there's a, there's a better translation that says King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in trepidation. There's this element of fear. Maybe it's holy fear. He's like, ghost, right? Because there is a fourth member in the furnace club and he is unharmed and apparently is the one who has rescued and delivered the other three. Uh, he convened a little meeting right there in the furnace, a little small group who was this fourth person who, who appeared from nowhere and cheated death and looks in appearance like a son of the gods. Well, the text doesn't say, but almost every Bible scholar is convinced that the fourth man was, say it with me, Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, what we call a theophany, a pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus. Before the word would take on human flesh in Bethlehem about 500 years later, Jesus would be at work on this day, Jesus, who has been at work since the beginning, uh, sustainer, creator of the universe. And, and you know, we only uh, seem to refer to Jesus as Emmanuel around Christmas time. You remember the angel announced that uh, you will call him Emmanuel. What does it mean? God with us. We'll talk about being Emmanuel to these kids, being literally with them. God just consistently demonstrates his goodness by his presence. If you are visiting today, I, I, I want you to know that Jesus does not stand far off, 
but instead he keeps coming closer and closer to sinful, weak, desperate people until he lives among them, until he dies for them, and ultimately his spirit indwells in them. He can be as close as you are. We trust God not because our circumstances are always good, but because he's demonstrated that he is always good. He entered our lives in the dust of an animal stall. He gave his life on a cross made filthy by, by the guilt of our sin. Faith now rests in the love his presence has always demonstrated. We trust him because through his son, God has shown how much he loves us. So here they are, uh, four guys in a furnace. You ever wonder what they said to each other? I wonder if the fourth man in the furnace told them how proud the father was of their loyalty and devotion and love. I I wonder if he told them that because of this one act of faithfulness, their names and their story would be told for thousands of years and that men and women and kids would face their own suffering and persecution or loneliness or even death, and they would be strengthened and encouraged by this story. I wonder what the other three said to Jesus. I bet they just poured out adoration and gratitude and worship. It's kind of poetic. You know, they came to this place, the place of Dura, verse two says, planning to withhold worship from a false God. And they end up worshiping like never before. I just, I, I think that's interesting. The furnace, which looked like the end of their lives, turned out to be the greatest thing they'd ever experienced. It was the can't miss event of their whole life. You know, the furnace turns out to be the place where they meet Jesus. And Jesus meets us in the furnace too. Folks, Jesus decided to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, not from it. I need to say that again. Jesus chose to deliver those three in the furnace, not from it. Maybe they hoped to be delivered from the furnace. You can't blame them. But God decided to deliver them in the furnace. And Jesus is still doing that in 2023. See, Uh, the place where full devotion to Jesus can lead you often is going to look scary and dangerous and painful and maybe even like the end. And it can turn out to be that's where Jesus is. You know, my dad used to say this all the time. He was quoting from Corey Ten Boom and her sister, Betsy, who were captives in a, Uh, Nazi concentration camp. He'd say, quoting her, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Now in Canada, uh, we think that means that we won't be hurt or disappointed or suffer. But, But Betsy's statement was a declaration that to walk in obedience to Christ 
is just always the right choice, regardless of the consequence. But, but we've, we've misinterpreted safety, haven't we? We pray to God for what we think is right, but ultimately we are to trust him to, to do what is ultimately best. And so could we even have enough faith to say as exiles, as a remnant, that God's provision is sufficient, it's loving, it's good, even if it falls short of our immediate desires, even if we can't fathom his wisdom in it all, where we can say with confidence, my faith is in what my God knows is best, not what I think is best. Jesus says, I'll meet you in the furnace. It's going to look dark. It's going to look dangerous. It's going to scare you. It's going to be lonely, but keep following me. I'll I'll meet you in the furnace. So um, read the rest of this chapter when you have a moment. I'm, I'm trying to wrap up here, but this wicked king is totally humbled and amazed. He even says, blessed be the God of these three. And, and by royal decree, no one is allowed to disparage their God. And then he doesn't just restore them to their old life. He promotes them to new positions of, of influence and authority. It's incredible. Now, that's the last we hear of them. They aren't mentioned again. And I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder what the rest of their lives were like. We don't know. I wonder if they ever uh, thought how easily they could have missed the greatest moment of their life. If they had given into fear, you know, one word, one bent knee, and they would have missed the greatest encounter with the living God. But it was in the furnace. I know one thing for sure. They'd never forget it. I bet even as, um, as old men, maybe they would meet on the anniversary of that date and they'd retell the story. Because see, if you ever spend time in the furnace and God meets you in that place, it, it changes you. You carry that. Going into the furnace, which looked like the last thing they ever wanted to do turned out to be the greatest event of their lives. The place that looked like death turned out to be the safest place of all. Why? Because Jesus was there. Church, sometimes God delivers people from the furnace and praise God for those times. But you know what? Sometimes God delivers in the furnace. And and those are the greatest times in your life. It's so important um, in in this talk of us being modern exiles uh, to tell this story. I think there's such a great danger in the church in Canada that our primary goal of life becomes furnace avoidance. God, deliver me from the pain and discomfort and suffering and inconvenience. You know, Lord, make my life smooth. But maybe God has something even better for us than a smooth life. A life of his presence. 
maybe we should even stop praying all the time, asking for less heat. Stop asking for an easier or more pleasant or more secure life because there's something even better. Ask for the presence of the fourth man in the furnace. Ask for the presence of Jesus who's going to meet you there. And maybe instead of, of even praying that God would deliver you from your lousy neighborhood with your annoying neighbors, um, maybe we'd pray that God would meet us there. And by his grace, maybe we'd even be used in that place for his glory. Maybe instead of praying to be delivered from your Nebuchadnezzar-like boss, maybe it will end up being your witness, like these three young men, that God uses to turn your boss, your coworkers, to the one true God. You've been avoiding what feels like the furnace. And I'm here to tell you that God is in the furnace. The furnace could involve a financial sacrifice, a, a relational hardship. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe we even need to pray different kinds of prayers for our kids. You know, less for their safety, more for them to be courageous in the face of trial and opposition. Tragedy does not mean God has vanished. Danger does not indicate that he has failed, okay? Difficulty does not imply that he is weak. God is in control. Difficulties may still arise, but he enables us to surmount them. Grief, grief may come, but God gives us strength to bear it. True faith simply acknowledges that God knows and does what is right and good. God said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, what he said to Stephen, the first martyr for Jesus, what he said to Peter and Paul and Corey Ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Mother Teresa on the streets of Calcutta and what he's saying to Audrey, who's grieving today, and Paul Maxman, who's bedridden, and Melissa Idzinga going through years of pain, and what he says today to millions in China, and Iran, and Ukraine, and Syria, and maybe someone here today in this room. I will meet you in the furnace. Open your eyes. I will be there. You'll have my presence. I don't presume to know what furnace you're facing. I don't know specifically what this means for you. I just know who will meet you there. Exile today, you are not alone. I believe the words of the prophet Isaiah, for I have redeemed you, fear not. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they're not going to sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
allow Jesus to meet you in the furnace.